is John. And welcome to church this morning. Add my welcome to that of Sandy's. And it's, uh, it's good to be here. And uh, you get to celebrate an occasion today. We have reached the end of the book of Micah. You've been trudging through it with me now for seven weeks. And uh, it's been a pretty heavy book. But um, do you realize that as we've been through, going through this now for seven weeks, we've journeyed with Micah over roughly what's about 25 years of time or perhaps a bit longer in his life and his life of ministry and for 25 years Micah called the people of God uh, back to the roots of their covenant back to the roots of their covenant relationship that they have with God urging them to call to mind urging them to remember the hesed the the unmerited kindness the steadfast love the enduring faithfulness of God towards them and, and to align their lives with it or face God's just and promised corrective displeasure and wrath toward them. Micah has been a watchman toward Israel. He's been their advocate. He's been an intercessor and he's also been the bringer of indictment. Micah has been the heart and the voice of God towards his people. And he has agonized over their condition. And he has warned them about God's coming judgment for unrepentant sin. And he's also cast a vision of what a a life in faithful relationship with God looks like. Chapter 7 is perhaps Micah's final message. It's certainly the final one that we have recorded his final sermon uh, to Israel and Israel who is now currently as Micah speaks being led by uh, a wicked king King Manasseh who unlike Hezekiah before him who had heeded the words of the prophet who had heeded uh, Micah's warnings we, we read about that in Jeremiah 26 and we read how how, how how there was they heeded the prophet that resulted in a temporary delaying of God's judgment. You know, the, the Assyrians came to the wall of Jerusalem and in 120,000 of them just kind of died overnight and they stopped their advance. Rather now Manasseh leads Israel from the greatest to the least in total contempt for the name of God and, and, and in total kind of disregard for God's concern for his people. He is leading them as their king. And they are willingly following him as, 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 as his people. To the inevitable uh, corrective uh, time of judgment in exile that God has promised. And so we find Micah as we begin this chapter completely downhearted. The fruit of the signs of repentance and renewal that he thought he saw taking place uh, under under the, the king Hezekiah, uh, you can read about them in Second Kings, have have died as quickly as they took root. How often is this the case? People use God for temp- temporary relief. They have a burst of spiritual piety, and then once the difficulty has passed, once the darkness that they're in has kind of eased, God quickly then finds his way back into the margins of our attention. And Micah's processing what he sees. He's deeply affected on an emotional level and on an existential level on on what all this means by what he observes. Stephen Um, whose commentary 
has been assisting us as we go along points out his people are torn apart by their desires and and and, and their deceits socially unraveling out of its own indifference uh, toward each other toward god and all the while god warning them of judgment and exile before, before things can be restored Micah preaches this last message from chapter 7 in a space of heartbreak into an unimaginably difficult situation. And as he does, Micah's final words to Israel and by extension to us, help us navigate times of dreadful darkness and in navigating them, finding a more illuminating hope. You and I are not Micah facing the heartbreak of watching the covenantal people run just conceitedly full of pride headfirst into God's judgment. Nor are we in the same uh, boat of redemptive history as God's people themselves about to fall into God's judgment and corrective displeasure. However, from time to time, we face our own environments of extreme anguish. Some of them are of our own doing, while others of them are being done to us. Some of them are taking place in others, others that we love. And it is just as agonizing. And some of them are just the environment, the climate we live in, a workspace, a school space, a political climate. Maybe your Christian life, uh, the intimacy has died. And, and, and its witness now seems compromised by poor choice after poor choice. And you feel like the road back is overrun with obstacles too many, too difficult to face. And it's a space of despair, a space of darkness. Maybe you sit out with ambitions of, of raising children uh, that would know Jesus, love God and, and live a life uh, instructed by the Holy Spirit. But the reality has not eventuated. That's a kind of darkness. It could be that you've never enjoyed the, the kind of relationship you've longed for. Never received the kind of recognition that you felt you deserve. Maybe you face financial disruption due to loss of employment or, or, or investment collapse. Or, or maybe you do find yourself living, working, studying in a completely godless environment. That can bring a certain kind of difficulty and that can bring a certain kind of darkness into our life. Darkness comes in many environments. Difficulties come to us by many means. How does God want us to deal with great difficulties? How does God want us to move through spaces of darkness? Does he want us just to, you know, ignore them, pretend they're not there. Just get over them. Does he want us just to stiff up a lip, just stoically power through them? Is he thinking maybe just leave them to be crushed and overwhelmed by them, buried into the dirt? In this final chapter of Michael, we see that far from having no solutions or just giving up in despair, God actually invites us to be honest and real, to assess what we see or perhaps what we don't see in this darkness, and pour out our great sorrow to him. And as we do, in that, reconsider our current situation against a counter-reality, the character of God, the character of God and his good actions, 
There, Micah says, and we will find hope in the darkness. Well, Micah's world could not be more disheartening for someone whose life work is to reestablish good relationships between people and God. Woe is me, he begins. This is not self-pity. This is not, oh, I'm all alone. No one loves me. No one listens to me. Why is my life so hard? It's not that shallow or self-indulgent. Again, Stephen Arm explains that in Scripture, the phrase, woe is me, is one of the most powerful and deeply felt phrases that can be invoked. It sums up the feeling of a grieving mother who's lost a child or a widow or a widower facing the funeral of their spouse or even that of a conquered nation. The phrase is only used in the most dire, most grim, most ruinous circumstances. Micah's situation, circumstance, Micah's lament comes from how sin has caused so much ruin and harm to the people of God, to his people, to his neighbors, to his family. Grief, lament, woe is me, is indeed a godly response to sin. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will find an experience of hope. Jesus is not merely speaking about mourning the loss of of something in itself. He's saying that those who mourn the brokenness behind the loss, those who grieve the cause of the loss as much as the event in itself, they grieve that our world is not as it should be. They see that sin has brought this loss of experience uh, into our lives. They will find a comfort in something greater than the sin and its effects. There is a grief that establishes a framework beyond the event. Jesus can promise this kind of comfort because he plans to be the comfort. A comfort that says, as we read in, in John 11 there, as with the death of Lazarus, a, a loss is temporal. A comfort that says, again, John in John 16, Jesus speaks that I have overcome the world and its troubles. A comfort in the one who makes all things new, as we read in Revelation about Jesus. A comfort that Paul says even takes away the sting of death. Well, the picture and the, and the disappointment of Micah is conveyed with this, this metaphor of someone yearning for something special only to find that there is nothing waiting for him to satisfy that desire of their soul. No ripe grape. No tasty fig to eat. When Micah went to survey the fruit of his life's ministry, he is confronted with an orchard of rotten fruit. Instead of God's people uh, being people who would do justice, who would love kindness, who would apply mercy, there is just pervasive violence against each other. There is corruption at all levels, an evil practice to gain at the expense of others. To gain at the expense of anyone less capable, less powerful. Rather than a well-dressed orchard, rather than a well-dressed vineyard, there is a wild, overgrown field of weeds and utter disarray. This description fills out in verses 2 to 6. The godly have perished from the earth. No one can be trusted. 
The present social upheaval has destroyed the normal, peaceful, trusting relationships within the community and even within families. Deceit and disloyalty are destroying the harmony and even down to, as we've said, the most intimate relationships from the top of society down to the grassroots of community. There is moral depravity to the extent that even the cherished values of family, family trust are in chaos. Children are seen as living in rebellion to their parents, living in rebellion to the, to the fifth commandment. And relatives are sworn enemies. Woe is me. This is unbearable. This is cause for lament. Lament is grief in the framework of God's presence. God's power and promise. It is not a stiff upper lip. It is not avoidance. It is not crushing despair. It is an appropriate response when we feel the wrecking ball of sin smash into our lives. Whether it's the effects of the sins that we have committed or the effects of sins that others have committed uh, that have affected us. Lament causes us to be real about the damage, to be real about the damage to us. That is where we must start. As we examine what causes Micah uh, to lament, we find that there are three basic things and they all have two things in common. These three things are about the good of others and the glory of God. There is the framework for lament. Micah grieves the disappearance of the righteous. There's a lack of the knowledge of God. Which inevitably leads to uh, a society of self-centered permissiveness. Where people devour each other for gain. As Hosea says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Take a good and sovereign God out of your worldview. And watch the world burn. You might think that's a little over the top. But history, history is my ally in this. There is something genuine to grieve at the disappearance of the righteous. Micah grieves. Micah also laments the corruption of leaders and and peacekeeping structures. Laws that were supposed to be there to protect the weak, to, 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 to defend the innocent. Those who are in uh, places to ensure that justice and kindness are exercised are actually using their places of privilege to pervert justice and to pervert the laws that should have been used to make sure that all people live with dignity, to make sure that all people live in security. They see them as detestable objects to getting what they want out of the world. These people are meant to be weavers of peace. They're put in place to to establish peace. But they have become obscurers of justice. Destroyers of peace. What they weave is evil. And they enjoy it and they do it well. And this is something to grieve and lament. When people use their power to abuse others, to devour others. Could be political power. Could be power in a marriage. Could be power on a job site. These things 
bring darkness. They bring grief. And it's right to lament them. Thirdly, Michael laments the destruction of intimate social relationships. Families, neighbors are are estranged from each other. In fact, every person is for themselves. And in doing so, they mislead others. They betray others. Placing their own personal gain over the integrity of relationships. There's total breakdown. Nobody can be trusted. Everybody's throwing nets and setting traps. There's probably no more powerful agent of lament than a broken family peace. And it's right to grieve and to, and to lament when that has broken into our worlds. Micah gives us real categories for lament. And it's not just the loss of our personal goals or, or our happiness or the ambitions. What should cause us deep sorrow is the lack of godliness in the world. Corruption in those who are entrusted with, with maintaining peace. And the destructive abuse in relationships of intimacy. We're right to grieve this. It's understandable that these things bring darkness into our worlds. When our lives are impacted by a lack of righteousness, the absence, the absence and disregard of God and His good design, when our lives are impacted by corruption, the lack of justice in leaders that are over you or by relational dysfunction, uh, the absence of, of kindness and mercy in communities and families in ways that bring darkness, it's not a time to pretend it's not real. It's not a time just to, to suck it up and get over it. But nor is it a time to be crushed into the ground by it. It is a time to lament, to cry out to God. Lament shifts our focus. Lament cries out to God. Refusing to reflect on the actual facts of life will only result in us living in in imaginary worlds. Worlds of, of avoidance that produce an unhealthy inner world of loneliness and distrust, even distrust in God. Then when you try to fit in with the godless status quo in order to survive. Micah sets for us an example for the audience back then in the 8th century BC and also for us here in the 21st century AD. Lament real grief that reflects on things is the beginning of finding hope. Well, Micah's lament exhibits a dramatic reversal of tone in verse 7. His environment has not improved. In fact, it stands to get a lot worse. But Micah now secures his soul against the environmental hopelessness by lifting his gaze to God. Here is, here hope is found. Indeed, hopelessness is stunningly overturned with not just a reversal of his environment, but a a confidence that that is even in a victory over the sin that's causing the darkness, that's causing the destruction. Micah changes gears. And it's now God, not his circumstances, that holds the prophet's heart and mind. Uh, The hymn writer, Helen Lemel, I think her name is, Pen that song, uh, the shifting of gears, the changing of focus in lament. The things of the earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his marvelous face. This is not escapism. This is bringing what is eternally real to bear on what is temporarily real. What are the actual factors that are that are at play here that lead to this prophet's change of perspective? What does he see? What does he hear? What does he remember about God that causes him to view his situation with a radically new hope? Well, firstly, Micah calls to mind. I can't see that back thing with these glasses on. I've got to, now I can't see this with them off. Micah calls to mind his privileged personal relationship that enjoys uh, uh, a relationship with God. He, he retrains his focus. He, he looks, is the expression here. He looks somewhere new. There is an intentionality about seeking out God. He's shifted his focus. There is an active desire for relationship, for fellowship, prayer, running affectionately, confidently, even contritely, after God, whatever the situation calls for in this difficulty is how hope is now found, how hope is now secured. This verb, or the verb in this phrase, I will look to the Lord, can be translated, I keep looking, I'm continuously looking, I'm always looking. God is a trusted friend, his goodness, a known rhythm of his life. And so he looks to him and he knows that God hears. He knows that God listens. He knows that God is aware of even this circumstance as he has been of the good times. Prayer is not something he pulls out only in a time of despair, only in a time of darkness and dire need. But if dire need precede lament, sorry, but if lament drives us to prayer, then hope too is reborn. Secondly, but at the same time, these things don't happen linearly, they all happen together. Micah actively waits. Hope is born out of recalling God's promises to save his people. At the end of, at the, end of the chapter in verse uh, 20, Micah says, uh, you will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. You have sworn it to our fathers. God has promised his salvation. That is, this word, that is the intervention to deliver his people from oppression of sin based on his goodness and their need of it. God intervenes with saving acts for his people when their activity goes from self-reliant to waits, waits actively, begins to look, begins to turn their attention to God for their salvation. This word wait is not a passive word, but rather it's one that conveys uh, the most powerful form of action uh, that the helpless can uh, participate in waiting is the activity of placing ultimate trust and hope in god that he will be to them as he has promised to be that he will be their great shepherd that he will be their great king he will be their warrior a savior who intervenes on their behalf god has sworn to be for his people and he is greater than their failures and their sins. If any other force other than God was to have the last word, then that force in itself would be God. But as the psalmist says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. 
And so Micah looks in prayer. That's the activity of waiting. And as he does, his prayers call to mind the greatness of God. He's just going over God's history with Israel. We read about it earlier in this book. Remember the time God rescued us from Egypt. Remember the time we crossed the Jordan. The great things that God has done. In his waiting, hope begins to be found. Because now this hope is focused on the character of God. The known character of God that has been the story of Israel that they have experienced uh, in their lives. Not the nature of their circumstances. I wonder, in, in our own despair at times, do we recall how God has been to us? Perhaps the most or, or the best place to start is how did God move to me a rebel and a sinner? When I was at my worst, he loved me at his greatest. And from that point, you begin to see how God deals with us. Can he be trusted? Is there anything we can do that would would uh, deter him from coming to our comfort and aid? Finally, Micah knows that God hears him. Of course he would. But more than just hearing, Micah knows that God acts because he has done it in the past. Micah's prayerful wait is not just wishful thinking it's profound confidence in god who is interested in his difficulties who is interested in the darkness it's not a burden to god it's a place for him to stoop into to come into to meet micah and bring hope god who has shown faithfulness to jacob and to abraham God who has sworn himself to their fathers in the days of old. Micah confidently looks. Micah confidently waits in prayer for his saviour. This is how hope is found in lament. By inviting God into the space to bring his character to bear. His goodness. Even at times his corrective displeasure on our lives. Its impact on Micah is extraordinary. We don't have time to unpack it. However, verses 9 to 17 of this uh, prophetic song, this prophetic poem of victory that pictures essentially a great reversal and the salvation of God's people. The darkness and the hopelessness gives way to light and renewed life. The one who was mocked and covered in shame is restored uh, bigger, better uh, than ever before, is rebuilt in greater measure, uh, the corrective experience of reflecting on the grievous nature of sin within and without has led to God's restoring of the broken. Those who turn to God find fullness of life. God is their shepherd. They enjoy the blessings. It's described here of you know uh, as Bashan and and Gilead to to experience. This is fullness of life. Bashan was a a place up that was just lush in its pastures and it's often described as having fat cows. I think Amos calls the women of Bashan fat cows. Uh, not nice, but there it is. Gilead's this place where Israel first came in uh, to the promised land. Great pastures. So so there's this picture. It's over the top, this this poem, this prayer. It's, it's completely over the top. But that's where, this hope, where the picture of this hope leads Micah in, in this kind of moment. And those who continue in rebellion will meet God on completely different terms. Shame will be their end. Fear and trembling will be their posture. 
Micah finishes with an extraordinary recapturing of the historic kindness and steadfast love of God. They can have hope in the darkness because of the character of God that has been on display all throughout history. What determines the future is shaped by how God has been in their past. God never changes, not in his nature and character. Sin may cause all kinds of havoc to come between God and his people, between people and families, marriages. The absence of the knowledge of God may shape culture, may drive the ethics of of political groups and powers, but God can still be found. Better yet, God is still finding us in this. And he delights to bring his love to bear on us as we look and wait and trust in his goodness. Refocused on God's character, Micah's declaration of praise is that only God can reverse and solve the issues of sin. And he is joyful for it. Micah's attention lifts from the contemporary history to the future. And he proclaims that God will act again in an even more extraordinary way. Sin will not merely be met with compassion and forgiveness for the one who has bared the indignation of God, but it will be cast into the depths of the sea. It's a powerful image of liberation from its hold that's conjured up here. Just as Egypt who held Israel in slavery, were cast into the sea, so too will the consequences, the power, the grip of sin, be buried in a way that liberates, in a way that frees. It's hard to imagine that Micah could have seen how God would ultimately do this in a way that that we understand, in a way that uh, transformed not uh, external environments, not political structures or, or civil institutions, but radically transformed the human heart to deal with sin there before it begins to shape uh, these external environments where they get abused. But Micah puts trust in God that he will do, he will cast sin into the depths of the ocean. That is what he is looking to God for. That is what he is waiting in God for. That is what he is knowing God will do. God will someday, as verse 9 kind of hints, plead a case and execute judgment in a way that brings truth and vindication to the lives of those who turn to God. Will we live this side of Christmas, this side of the coming of Jesus, and we have the privilege of viewing Micah's hopes that he waited for, that he looked to God for, as fulfilled history. We have the privilege of seeing Jesus, uh, the story of Christmas that's told in the Gospels, that God in the flesh, you know, we sing that song, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, came to cast sin into the ocean, came to liberate us from its power. How? Well, by becoming our lament. Jesus is the one who becomes mocked. He is the one who is seen as abandoned by God. Jesus bears the indignation and wrath of God. And not for any sin he committed. He's without sin. 
But he bears God's wrath. He bears the indignation and scorn of humanity in our behalf, in our place. Jesus bearing shame. Jesus experiencing loneliness. He feels the exile that sin brings as God brings his displeasure to bear on him and as God turns his face from him. Jesus feels even the sting of death. So that though we die, we will not feel its sting. Who is like God? Like the God of Micah. Like the God of Christmas that trades places with rebels. That pardons the iniquity of rebels. But does it himself. Pays the price himself. Bears the wrath himself. Sin will not have the last word here either. For God is greater than even the power of death. And Jesus is the bringer of ultimate justice and hope. And as his death satisfies God's holy anger and and righteousness towards sin, his resurrection back to life, and the offer of the same to those who would look and wait and know him, vindicates you and I is applied to you and I. Here is where ultimate hope is found in Jesus. When lament finds us, we need to look to Jesus as our ultimate saving hope. We need to wait actively in the promise that is are attached to his resurrection and know that in Jesus, we have God's ultimate response to darkness, God's ultimate response to distress and difficulties. In Jesus, we are brought near to God to know and experience uh, the delight of his steadfast love, the comfort of his compassion and the grace of his goodness. In Jesus, we have a watchman, an advocate, an intercessor who pleads on our behalf. Every time sin comes uh, to condemn, Jesus says, no, I took the exile for that, the shame and the wrath of that. This is where ultimate hope is found and what shapes how we lament and grieve. In Jesus, we bring to bear what is eternally real and what is temporarily real. What shapes our future and how we deal with darkness should be how God dealt with us in the past at the cross in Christ. This is where ultimate hope is found. This is where darkness and lament should lead us. I don't know if you noticed, but when you came in, there's a little heart on your chairs. I didn't plan it. I just saw it when I walked in. We were going to do something else with it. But when I saw him sitting on the chairs and I thought about the nature of this sermon, I thought we might just close today by picking up those little hearts. What they're there is for you to write down a prayer of hope. Something that might be bringing despair or darkness or something into your life. And you write it on the little Christmas, on that little card, take it home, hang it on your Christmas tree or whatever you've got in your home. And then at the end of Christmas, just pack it away and keep it. And then just wait and, and see. And if I remember, we'll return to it. And see how God has been toward us. 
It's just something tangible. It's just something to do. It might even just serve as a reminder to every time you feel the weight of darkness to go, no, I need to, I need to look. I need to wait and I need to trust. So we're going to take up our offering now. Um, so you can fill out those little cards and keep them. Um, so we'll just sit with that for a minute and then I'll pray and the offering can go around. I'm just thinking about our last song and whether I want to change it. Lord, we thank you for this uh, book of Micah that we've been journeying through and um, and in it is just the the chaos and destruction of a world that runs towards sin. But then pushing back against that is the goodness of a God who keeps trying and, and pleading and, and, and looking to lead people out of that and back into a relationship with Him. And it's been a good exercise as we approach Christmas to, to, to see how God's ultimate response to the brokenness of this world was to come Himself, to come in Jesus and to bring this ultimate hope. Uh, this Christmas season, as we approach Christmas, would we, uh, in and of ourselves, look look to this story and renew our hearts with it, prayerfully pray around um, all that God has done for us in Christ. And as we do, we know that God is for us. And it's not just an intellectual exercise, but it is a deep uh, feeling, uh, the work of the Spirit of God in us. And here is here is just the the pathway and the process as, as we lament uh, the impact and the grief of sin in our world and in our own lives. Uh, we thank you for all that you have blessed us with outside of our, our knowing you, our, um, our material possessions, our resources. Uh, this is just a moment in our service where we just are uh, in praise and thankfulness and gratitude uh, give back to you. And we pray that as this church receives these gifts, that they would use them wisely and diligently uh, in ways that would um, further the announcing of this great hope in Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.